I'm reading uh, this morning from John chapter 20. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. You can be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you again this morning, Lord, thanking you for this time that we have together. Thanking you that we can come together as your people to worship you, to worship Christ, to thank you for your grace and your love poured out upon us. God, we acknowledge to you as your people that apart from Christ and his blood shed on our behalf, we have no part with you. And it is by your marvelous, glorious grace and mercy that we can draw near. And so, Father, I I ask, I plead with you, O oh God, according to the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that as we draw near to you this morning, Father, you would also draw near to us. Give us understanding of your word. Father, help me to speak in a way that is intelligible and coherent so that your people may be built up and edified, Father, but above that, that you may be glorified and that Christ, your Son, may be exalted. Oh Lord, let not my sins stand in the way of your truth being proclaimed. Oh God, let not our hard hearts stand in the way of your truth, teaching us and bringing us to greater understanding of your Scriptures. Father, soften our hearts. Teach us of the love of Christ. And draw us into a greater love for our King and Savior. All glory is yours, Father. Help us this morning. Be present with us, God. And have mercy on us. Amen. So, this morning is the last sermon in our series on the Gospel according to John. Now, 
It's always difficult to bring something like this to a close. Because undoubtedly, there are things which I could have or perhaps should have said that I have not. Part of the weakness of a gospel preacher is that it's impossible to fully express the glory and the beauty of the gospel. Because for the one preaching, language and vocabulary often fail to capture completely in words what the Spirit has placed in our hearts and minds. The work of the preacher can never have its full, its full effect apart from the power of the Holy Spirit to give understanding. And I thank God that where man is weak, he is strong. I thank God that where my mind and my words have failed over these last weeks, that he is powerful to give understanding. And so moving forward this morning, I trust that God will be faithful to glorify himself and to faithfully exalt Christ. Now I have two aims this morning. First is to touch on the death and resurrection of Jesus because it is, of course, foundational to saving faith. And second, I want to bring together all of the things we've looked at in this series and present the gospel as fully as I can. And I want to give an encouragement for us as God's people to carry it, the gospel, into our community with full confidence that God will make it effective to save his people who are yet in darkness. And I want to mention, too, that this morning is probably going to be just a little different from the way that I've been doing, because as I've been kind of going verse by verse this morning, um, we're looking at principles and concepts and passages, right? So bear with me, but understand that, that I am trying to bring together everything that we've talked about these past seven weeks. And I want to present to you all a gospel that we can take into the community. We can take to our neighbors, our co-workers, our families, and make Christ known. So let's begin reading in John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Now, this is, this is smack dab right in the middle of Christ being brought in to be crucified, okay? And so, for background, we, we've, we've, we've gone over some of these things. We've gone over uh, his supper with the disciples. We've gone over his praying. And this has all led up to the moment where Judas has finally betrayed our Lord, and the Jewish leaders have gotten hold to him and brought him forward to be crucified. So verse 16 says, So 
He then handed him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha or Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But he said, But that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it should strike us that Jesus' humiliation was so severe. The king of kings was flogged. He was given a robe and a crown of thorns and a reed as a scepter to complete the picture of a mocked, humiliated ruler. But he will be clothed in white, wearing a golden crown, and he will carry a rod with which to break the nations. There have been others to point out some of the ways that we can clearly see a dichotomy between how Jesus was treated versus how he will be and is exalted. So this is a lengthy quotation, but bear with me. Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote in a book about this dichotomy. He said that Christ should come from the eternal bosom of his Father to a region of sorrow and death. That God should be manifested in the flesh. The Creator made a creature. That He that was clothed with glory 
should be wrapped with rags of flesh. He that filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger. That the power of God should fly from weak men, the God of Israel, into Egypt. That the God of the law should be subject to the law, the God of circumcision, circumcised, the God that made the heavens working at Joseph's homely trade. That he that binds the devils in chains should be tempted. That he whose is the world and the fullness thereof should hunger and thirst. That the God of strength should be weary, the judge of all flesh condemned, the God of life put to death. That he that is one with his father should cry out of misery, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That he that had the keys of hell and death at his girdle should lie imprisoned in the sepulchre of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body. That that head before which the angels do cast their crowns should be crowned with thorns, and those eyes purer than the sun put out by the darkness of death. Those ears, which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels, to hear the blasphemies of the multitude, that face that was fairer than the sons of men, to be spit on by beastly wretches, that mouth and tongue that spake as never man spake, accused for blasphemy, those hands that freely swayed the scepter of heaven, nailed to the cross, those feet like unto fine brass, nailed to the cross for man's sins. Each sense annoyed, his feeling or touching with a spear and nails, his smell with stinking flavor, being crucified about Golgotha, the place of skulls. His taste with vinegar and gall, his hearing with reproaches and sight of his mother and disciples bemoaning him. His soul, comfortless and forsaken. In short, we should consider well that the glorious Son of God was brought low. And not just as an earthly king may fall from his position of power because of some conflict, but as the most glorious king humbling himself to save a multitude who, when combined and considered all together as a whole, could never come close to measuring up to his worth. The king of glory brought low the one who 
gives life. Executed. This is this moment in history. This is the darkest moment in history. Not just because the Son of God was killed, but because of who He is. You see, I've heard it said, if you put Christ on one side of the scale and you put everything else that has ever existed, that ever will exist, all matter, space, and time, Christ outweighs it all. And so for this one to be brought low, to be humbled as he was, is shocking and glorious. And many times, many times when people talk about the crucifixion, they talk about the physical torture that Jesus endured. And this is, it is an important aspect of what's going on in these verses. The sacrifice that Jesus was offering of himself had to be a bloody one, like the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Now, we all have likely heard the many gory details of what the human body went through during Roman crucifixion, but something that is often left behind in our discussions of Jesus' crucifixion is what he was enduring alongside the physical pain and torture of the cross. The horror of the cross for Jesus was not, it was not, the few short hours that he would have to bear physical pain. When, when he prayed that if it was possible that the cup be removed from him, the cup that he was praying about was not the painful execution, the same of which many of his followers would go to singing hymns with joy. The cup that he prayed would be removed was the cup of God's wrath. In order to free us from the curse of sin, Jesus had to become a curse on our behalf. In order for us to receive from the Lord, God bless you. He had to receive from the Lord God damn you. The wrath of God poured out on his son was that as Christ took upon himself the sins of mankind, God forsook him and allowed him to die as one who was a lawbreaker, even though he had been perfectly obedient. God poured out his holy hatred for sin upon Jesus. And it says in Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to crush him. The wrath of God poured out upon Christ. was not what so many preachers make so much of. That God looked at the suffering of this man for a few short hours and, and, and simply counted that. 
as payment for our sins. Christ was never for a moment in his entire life not loving God the way that he ought to be loving God. Christ was never for a moment in, his, in, 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 in all of eternity separated from the love of the Father. And yet in this moment, because He bore the sins of men, the Father forsook Him and allowed Him to die as a sinner. The wrath of God poured out against Christ was that the perfect, holy, obedient Son of God had to be treated like you deserve to be treated. Had to be condemned by sin. Look at verse 30. In chapter 19, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. The word here used for it is finished is the Greek word tetelestai, the root of which is the word teleo. This word is used in a few other places in the New Testament. And its meaning, as we will see, is exactly what it says. Finished. Complete. Accomplished. So I want us to look at a couple of these verses. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 50. Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> and of course, this is in regard to the crucifixion. Okay, This is Christ in one of the moments where he's telling his disciples exactly what's going to happen. And they don't understand, but he tells them anyway. Luke chapter 12, verse 50, it says, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. There's that word, teleo, accomplished, finished, completed. Luke 18, verse 31. Look at what he says here. The same kind of reference. 1831. It says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be teleo, accomplished. In Luke twenty two thirty seven. 37. Very quickly. <clears throat> For I tell you, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment, teleo. And so very quickly again, I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, and I want to look at exactly what Jesus was talking about must be fulfilled, must be accomplished. 
Isaiah chapter 53, this is a, this is a well-known passage, okay? Isaiah chapter 53, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Listen to this. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity, iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taking away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet He was with a rich man in death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But, and listen, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus' suffering for the sins of his people was prophesied and accomplished. Everything that we just read was accomplished. Christ was crushed for the sins of God's people. And so he gave up his breath. He said, it is finished. And he died. God died. But then, glory. Glory. After Jesus died, he was placed in a tomb, and a large stone was placed and sealed in front of it, so that no one could come and steal the body as it was feared might happen. And so let's look ahead here in John. Chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we'll start in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. 
but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come to the tomb first, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes, but Mary, this is glorious, Mary went, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet of where Jesus' body had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Where have you laid him? And I will take him away. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father, and your Father, my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, there are numerous things that can be pointed out in this account to show us that it's true. Numerous things in, in, in the other accounts, the other Gospels, that we can look at to see that the testimony is true. But this morning, what I want to focus in on is the effect the effect of the resurrection. So turn with me again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's look at the effect of the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll start in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith also is in vain. You see, if Christ was not raised from the dead, your faith is a foolish faith. Because you believe that a dead man came to life and he didn't. But glory, he actually was raised. 
Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, but now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The effect of Christ's resurrection is that death is defeated. Those who are dead in sin can be made alive to righteousness. And those that die in Christ will be raised to eternal life. This is the power of the resurrection for God's people. That the darkness and blackness of your sin is no more. That the death that it brings is no more. That even though you will all die and be laid into the ground or burned up, even though that happens, when He comes again, He will raise you with Himself with a physical body like His, and you will be with Him without death. And so let's turn back very quickly to Isaiah chapter 53 and look at the last two verses of that chapter that we read. And just see the glory there. 53.11, it says, As a result, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, Jesus Christ, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, glory, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You see, because Christ was obedient, He received what was promised. And that's that the sin 
that he died for and the sinful men that he died for would be saved, would be brought to life, would be raised again. And so here is where I want to give us the gospel. Now, I don't see anybody in this room that hasn't heard the gospel. But because the gospel is so glorious, and because it's the it's the culmination of everything that we've been looking at over the over the past few weeks, I just I want to give us a picture of what we can take outside of these walls and trust in. And so here it is. You were created by God. You have been given the gifts of life and breath by the one who made you. But you have a problem. Your problem is that God is good. Now you might say, you might ask, why is this a problem? Why is it a problem that God is good? Well, it's a problem because you are not. You are not. You see, when God made the world and made man to dwell in it, Genesis says that God looked and saw that it was very good. And soon after God made man, he gave them a command. And soon after he gave them a command, they broke the command and sin entered the world. Sin came and with sin came death. Death entered the world because of sin. And so sin and death affected everything. The very nature of man was corrupted by sin and caused a separation to be formed between God and man because God is holy. Now, to say that God is holy is not just to say that God is good or that God is just or that God is righteous. To say that God is holy is to say that God is so good, that He is so just, that He is so righteous, that He is altogether separate. He is altogether other. His goodness is perfect goodness. His justice is perfect justice. His righteousness is perfect righteousness. Sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. Because God is perfect in His justice, He cannot simply forgive sin. The wages of sin is death. So God, in His great mercy, allows men to yet live while they are still sinners. But He has to, He must deal with sin because He is perfectly just. A just God cannot ignore sin and He cannot simply pass over it to, to, to forgive you. 
And this brings us back to you. Scripture is clear. All men, that is all humans, are sinners. And it's not that you're just a sinner. It's that all you do is sin. You don't know how sinful you are in the same way that a fish doesn't know how wet it is. And it's not just that you're sinful. It's that you're so sinful that it took the death of God the Son to forgive you, to cleanse you. Genesis says that God looked into the heart of man and saw that it, its desire was to do evil continually. We've also seen in the past weeks that, that man is by his very nature an object of God's wrath. And this is not a trivial problem. This is not a trivial problem. Most people walk through this life thinking that they're basically good. But the testimony of the Bible is that there is no one good. No, not one. The Bible says that the natural man is a slave to sin and that he cannot please God. Now, this picture that I've created is a dire one. And if I simply stopped here, you'd be hopeless. Because God says that even your good works are like filthy rags. And the literal picture here, filthy rags, is a used menstrual cloth. Your good works are no better than that. This means that even if you do understand how unworthy and filthy and sinful you are in the eyes of God, there's nothing that you can do to make it right. And so death and justice await. Now, I want you to think about this justice for just a minute, because this justice is associated with an infinitely good God. A uh, quick example that I've used uh, a bunch of times is that we can, we can measure how bad the sin is against how great the person is that you sin against. Okay? So... And, and forgive me this, if this seems silly. I'm not trying to make it silly. But if one of you just walks up to the stage and like punches me in the nose, right? What's going to happen? Probably not a whole lot. I might cry a little bit and everybody get a laugh, you know, whatever. Um, but generally, there's not going to be a whole lot that happens. Maybe, maybe we try to reconcile. Maybe something happens. But that sin is against me. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. But let's replace me with a police officer. Okay? Let's say there's a police officer sitting up here, and one of you decides to get up and pop him in the nose. Now, what happens? Oh, you're probably going to jail. You know what I'm saying? You're probably getting cuffed up and perp-walked out. You're going to get your mugshot taken, all those good things, right? You end up uh, next to Wade there in the jail. But him on the other side of the bar is going, you shouldn't have done that. <clears throat> now, let's replace the police officer with the president. Regardless of what our thoughts are about this current president, okay? Let's replace it with the president. Now, what happens if the president's standing right here and you come up and just pop him in the nose? Well, not only are you going to prison, they're probably going to throw you under the prison and lock, lock the door, right, and throw away the key. That's probably what's going to happen. Because the person that you've sinned against is a very important person. 
right? You can't just walk up and assault the president and expect to get away with it the way that you can walk up and assault me and probably most likely get away with it. This is not an encouragement to assault me, by the way. <clears throat> but now, now, now let's, let's take it a step further. Who have you offended by your sin? Holy God. Holy God is who you who you've offended by your sin. And so what does justice demand because of your sin against God? Because He is perfectly good, because He is perfectly righteous, because He is holy and altogether different and separate from us. What does justice demand? Not simply that you die and are annihilated. Not simply that you die and cease to exist. That's not what justice is. You see, there's nothing in Scripture that says when a man dies, he ceases to sin. And so in your sinful nature, in your sinful thoughts, justice demands that you suffer the eternal wrath of God. And this is a key component because Christ is the only one who could have suffered the eternal wrath of God. You see, the Son of God is eternal. And so the eternal Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, suffered the eternal wrath of God on your behalf. Meaning that justice is either found in the fires of hell or in the bloodshed of Christ. Justice demands more than that you simply die and cease to exist. But here's where I get to tell you the good news. God has made a way for filthy sinners to be made right with Him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly entered into the world that He Himself created. God the Son took on flesh to become like us. In every way that sinful man has failed to obey God, Jesus was perfectly obedient. In obedience to the law of God, which demanded bloodshed to atone for sin, Jesus became the sacrifice for sinful flesh and took upon himself in the place of sinners the holy hatred and wrath of God against sin. Puritan Stephen Sharnock puts it this way. He says, He received our evils to bestow his good and submitted to our cause to impart to us his blessings sustained the extremity of that wrath we had deserved to confer upon us the grace that he had purchased. The sin in us which he was free from was by divine estimation transferred upon him as if he were guilty. That the righteousness he has which we were destitute of 
might be transferred upon us as if we were innocent. He was made sin as if he had sinned all the sins of men. And we are made righteous as if we had not sinned at all. This is the great exchange that we've talked about. Jesus takes our sins upon himself and we receive his righteousness. After he was put to death under the wrath of Almighty God, he was buried. And after he was buried, he was raised again to life by the power of God. Now the call of the gospel is simple. It's simple. The call of the gospel is believe in Christ and repent of your sins. It's believe the one that God sent. Believe that He died for sinners in their place. And that after He died, He was raised to life and lives now to give us life. And the effect of the gospel is also simple. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone, listen to this, guys, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The effect of the gospel, as I've said weeks ago, is that you love the things that God loves and you hate the things that God hates. The evidence that you have truly believed in Christ that you have truly been born again is that your heart is changed. That you no longer desire to live for your sinful temptations, your sinful passions, your sinful pleasures, your sinful anxieties, but you desire to live like Christ. You desire to live in righteousness according to God's good commands. Now, if there, are any, if there are any listening to what I'm saying, and either you are unconcerned about your sinful heart, you're hardened, I have hope for you. 
There's nothing, there's nothing that my Jesus cannot overcome. Even your hard heart. Many, many may think that God is cruel or arrogant to demand belief. But it is they who are cruel and arrogant. Consider this. Consider the cost for God to forgive men. It cost his son. And he bids you believe in the one who died on your behalf. And yet unbelief is so insidious that it causes you to reject it and say that God would be cruel to not forgive me just because I don't believe. Do you see the, the outstanding arrogance of that? That a person who has never lifted a finger to honor God, who has never been concerned at all with godliness, would look at God and say, you're unjust. That's not fair. I don't accept your kindness. I talked to an atheist one time. I've actually talked to quite a few atheists, but I talked to an atheist one time, and I remember he looked at me in the face, and that's exactly what he said. He said, he said, I can't see how a good God would send me to hell just because I don't believe in Jesus. Do you not realize what it costs to forgive you? Do you not realize that your sin is so wretched, so wicked, so black that it costs the Son of God giving His life, shedding His holy blood on your behalf to forgive you? Do you not realize that? We should have no expectation for God's kindness after a life of refusing to acknowledge our Creator. If you've never been concerned to obey God, then don't expect His kindness. But, you said, I have hope. Because there is love enough in the Father and in the Son to save a multitude of sinners in a multitude of worlds. And He bids you repent and believe. He says you must be born again. And so again, for anyone... Anyone here or anyone listening online, let me make an appeal to you with a few scriptures. All right. First is Matthew, is in Matthew chapter 11. We'll start in verse 28. Christ says to the sinner, Christ says to the wicked sinner, 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You see, your burden of sin, your burden of sin is too much for you to bear. It is too much for you to bear. And so Jesus holds his arms open and he says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden with their sins and darkness, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you come to Christ, you don't come to a hard master. You come to the one who died in your place. Look at John 14.6. This is another very well-known verse. Let me just use it to appeal to anyone listening. John 14.6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You see, if you have, if you have hope as a human being, and you see your wickedness, you see your sin, you see where you stand with God, what you also have to recognize, what you also have to see, what you also have to understand is that there's only one way to get back to Him. There's only one way to be brought into complete, whole fellowship with God. And that is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the only way. There is no truth besides me. And life cannot come to you apart from me. And let's also look at Hebrews chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. This is my appeal. This is my appeal. If there's anyone listening that is not a believer. You see the weight of your sin. You see where you stand before God. And you stand on this precipice of, do I come to Christ or do I reject Christ? Listen to this plea. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, today, if you harden, excuse me, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear His voice telling you you're sinful, you're in need of a Savior, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care. Brethren, take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still 
called today. Today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Today, if you hear the voice of Christ clearly, today, today, do not harden your hearts. Today, do not be burdened any longer by unbelief. Repent of your sins and believe on Christ. For the promise here today is that if you hear His voice and you believe His word, you will be saved. So finally, what I want to do is encourage us as Christians, as a church, to take this glorious gospel, this gospel of salvation that cost the blood of Christ. I want to encourage us to take this gospel out there. Down that way. And so here's my appeal. We ought to take the gospel outside of these walls because God loves the world. God loves sinners. He loves them. And so how, how will these sinners know the love of God Unless somebody shows them, explains to them exactly how God has loved them. We should take this gospel out of these four walls because Jesus cannot fail. You see, just, what, just like we looked at in John chapter 6 a few weeks ago, Christ came to fulfill the will of his father and the will of his father was that of all that were given to him he would lose none of them right the reason we've spent so much time looking at how god is the strong one in this work of salvation how god is the author in this work of salvation how god is the primary mover in this work of salvation how god himself is the one who accomplishes it and it's all to his glory the reason that we've we've studied so hard on that the reason that we've come away going man look at what god has done look at just how in control god is of all these things it's because we can know in taking the gospel from here out there that it cannot fail. It is impossible that Christ, through His obedience, has failed. 
all of those for whom he has died will be saved and will be raised again. But faith, my friends, my church, comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. God's will will absolutely come to pass. But it's through the means of preaching and making his word known to those around us. We cannot neglect making Christ known. We cannot neglect it if we love him and if we love our neighbors. And so let, let, me, let, let me just, you see my, my, my fingers here. And if I, I do this and I do this, I've got one finger pointed out. And I've got three pointed directly back at me and then one pointed to the ground. Okay? Understand that what I'm about to say, this is the posture. Then I'll add the other hand. So I've got six fingers pointed at me and two pointed at you. Okay? But listen. Listen. How can we say that we truly love Christ and that we truly love our community? We truly love our neighbors. If we as Christians are unwilling, unwilling to take this glorious gospel to them. It's not the obligation of the preacher standing here on Sunday mornings. It's not the obligation of the church building existing here on Sunday mornings to bring people in so that they hear the gospel. My responsibility to you is the responsibility of a shepherd to believers. Not an evangelist to unbelievers. And I know that sounds strong. It sounds weird. But look at it in Scripture. The fellowship of the saints is exactly that. It's the fellowship of the saints, of the saved ones, of the ones who have come to faith. It doesn't mean that an unbeliever can't walk in here and hear everything that's going on and witness everything that's going on and be moved by it. That's not what it means. But what I'm telling you is that the primary responsibility of the church building, of the church here when we worship, is not to evangelize unbelievers. That's our job when we walk out of those doors. So how can we, how can we say that we love Christ and that we love our neighbors if we neglect making Him known when we walk out? And then the final reason that I have written here for why we ought to take this glorious gospel into the community. And this is the most important one. It glorifies God. It glorifies God. Going and being willing to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your family, with your friends, with the unbelievers that are out here, right? Going to share the gospel with them. It should not be done just so we can, we can check a box that says we've done our duty, right? I've proved that I love God enough because I've, I've, I've shared the gospel some. Primary reason we do this 
outside of the fact that we ought to because we love God and we love our neighbors. The primary reason we ought to do this is because it brings glory to Almighty God. Because it glorifies Him. It glorifies Christ. It exalts our glorious, faithful Savior to proclaim His gospel in the highways and the byways, in the streets of Batesburg, in our offices, in our shops, in the doctor's offices, in our schools. So I want to end with two passages. And I just want to leave it there. The first passage is in Revelation chapter 21, starting verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And see, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, these words are faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In the second passage, turn the page over, chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. The world outside of these walls the people there are enemies of Almighty God. 
by their very nature. You have a responsibility to God because you say you love Him and you say you love them. You have a responsibility to bring the words of life to them. And so church, my encouragement to us all is to do it. As weeks and months go forward, as this year continues on, the elders have set to create opportunities to do this. So that we can set an example and so that you all can do your part to love God and love your neighbor. This gospel is glorious and it saves without failure. We can partake of the waters of life through Christ. And how can we not try to open that way for the people around us? Let's pray. Almighty God, come before you again, Father, thanking you for this time, thanking you for this, this morning, Lord, in your word. Father, I've, I've preached your gospel with a stammering tongue. And I'm, I'm, I'm weak and imperfect in many ways, Lord. But I pray, O oh God, that you would make your word, your truth, by your Holy Spirit, effective to your people. And anyone who would, who would hear this glorious gospel, Father, who is yet in darkness, I pray that you would make it effective to them. Lord, I pray that you would call your sheep out of the darkness of sin and into the glorious light of Christ, and that you would encourage us, O oh God, by your word preached this morning and over this past weeks, and your word that will be preached continually from this pulpit. God, I pray that you would bring us into greater and greater faithfulness to your word and a greater and greater love for you and for the world around us. Almighty God, help us because we are weak. Help us because we need your help. Help us, O oh God, because apart from you, we toil in vain. Apart from your spirit, regenerating people, making them born again, opening their ears and their eyes to the gospel of Christ. Apart from that, Father, we preach your gospel in vain. And so, oh God, do your work in faithfulness and save your people. Amen.